The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Challenges and Changes with Targeted Options in CLL Guidance on Making Evidence-Informed Upfront and Sequential Treatment Choices. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XPA 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome and thank you uh, for joining us for Challenges and Changes with Targeted Options in CLL. Guidance on Making Evidence-Informed Upfront and Sequential Treatment Choices. So as many of you know, there have been many, several major Phase three studies looking at the use of targeted agents, both in treatment-naive and the relapse refractory CLL. Obviously, being a Brutinib as the first to market, a BTK, covalent BTK inhibitor, you have the Resonate 2, Illuminate, ECOG 1912, and Alliance. All of these major Phase three studies showed superiority in PFS over traditional chemoimmunotherapy. Then we have a Calibrunib, we have the Elevate TN, Ascend, and the Elevate RR study, and again, showing superior PFS for a Calibrunib um, over either more conventional chemoimmunotherapy, and the Ascend trial also over an arm that included a PI3 kinase inhibitor with idilisib. And then sooner, obviously uh, younger in maturity, is Xanabrutinib with Sequoia and Alpine, again, showing superior PFS uh, versus traditional chemoimmunotherapy. And then in comparison to other head-to-head data showing superior safety trial uh, profile with Abrutinib. And then moving away from covalent BTK inhibitors, we have venetoclax, a BCL2 inhibitor, and the major study that we all focus on tends to be the CL14 venetoclax obinutuzumab versus obinutuzumab clarambucil, and in the relapse setting, the Murano study with venrituxx versus BR. So here, focusing on continuous BTK inhibitor-based therapy versus fixed-duration BCL2 combination with ven monoclonal antibody. Despite these advances, obviously there's a lot of work to be done yet in CLL, although we're thankful to have these new targeted agents that really have transformed what we do for our patients. But there are still things that we notice, and so chemoimmunotherapy is still being given quite regularly um, in practice, both in the U.S. and in, in Europe as well. And so here's a more recent update with the ERIC showing that about half of the patients are still getting chemoimmunotherapy um, in a recent real-world analysis. In the informed CLL registry, we still see a lot of uh, chemoimmunotherapy being given for patients with unmutated status as well as folks, which is, you know, in my head, a a big shame. Those who have a deletion 17P or P53 mutation are still not being, having uh, recommended NCCN guidelines in the sense that they're not receiving targeted therapy and really should be. Um, in addition to what we learn, we know that for patients who are uh, starting to receive these therapies, uh, they're obviously, we're seeing some resistance that is developing with BTK inhibitors, covalent BTK inhibitors, and this also will complicate, and we'll discuss this later, will complicate some of the treatment decisions that we make for our patients. Typically, you know, patients, and these are tests that can be done uh, commercially uh, available if they're not done at your center. Uh, a lymphoid-resistant mutation panel can be sent, and BTK C481 S or PLC gamma 2 mutations tend to be the most common. There are patients who don't have either of these mutations but have evidence of progressive disease, either a rising uh, lymphocyte count or some growing lymphadenopathy. Um, so usually, typically, you'll see this in somebody who's been on a covalent BTK inhibitor somewhere around the four to six year mark. That's usually what I tend to see in my practice. 
And then, of course, we have a newer entity. We have double refractory CLL. This is a new clear unmet need. So these are patients who have already developed some resistance to a covalent BTK inhibitor and also had a BCL2 inhibitor, i.e. traditionally uh, venetoclax, although there are newer ones being explored on the market. But certainly they can develop resistance as well, and there are papers looking at resistant mutations there as well. And so certainly these patients, there's more difficulty in finding suitable lines of therapy for double refractory patients. Uh, patients progress very quickly um, and uh, do poorly with subsequent lines of therapy. So this is clearly a new unmet need that hopefully uh, we'll address with newer agents. So for today's agenda, obviously we're going to talk about head-to-head -head evidence and safety with targeted agents, future of targeted platforms with novel combinations, um, optimizing sequencing, and we're going to do some cases as well at the end. A lot to do in 40 minutes. Okay. So when we talk about the uh, advent and success of continuous BTK inhibitor-based therapy, you know, our more mature data sets come from uh, the Resonate 2 study with Abrutinib. We now have eight years of follow-up, and now a Calabrutinib, much more mature data with Elevate TN, now five years of follow-up. And you can see here that the median PFS has not been reached um, versus more traditional chemotherapy with Clarimso or Clarimso obinutuzumab. So again, nice long, uh, long data set showing a, a, a very good follow-up and, and nice PFS data for patients receiving chronic continuous BTK. Xanabruna being the newer to, um, uh, to play in the field, so certainly we have shorter follow-up, but definitely uh, we have also PFS benefits seen uh, when we look at that in the Sequoia study versus Vendamustine and Rituximab. When we look at our high-risk patient population for continuous BTK inhibitor-based therapy, uh, you can see that we now have accruing and substantial data on patients who have a TP53 or deletion 17P, both with a Brutinib, a Calabrutinib, and now even Xanabrutinib, who might have the larger cohort uh, of this uh, higher-risk patient population. And you can see here, again, the median PFS not yet established for most of these studies um, and showing superiority to more traditional chemoimmunotherapy, which should not be given for this patient population. And then switching gears from covalent BTK inhibitors, we have the CLL14 study. So obviously this is fixed duration treatment with venetoclax and obinutuzumab versus chlorambucil and obinutuzumab. And again, the estimated PFS was 63% for the ven obinutuzumab arm compared to 27% in the obinutuzumab chlorambucil arm. And you could see even in the patients who have high-risk features with deletion 17P, um, you could see that they're doing very, very well, although with shorter follow-up compared to the chronic continuous BTK. TK inhibitor studies that I showed you previously. So I'm going to pass this over to my colleague here, Deb Stevens, to talk about uh, safety management with targeted agents. Thanks so much for the great introduction. And all of us know that these drugs have led to really great benefits in increasing progression-free and overall survival in these patients. Uh, what we haven't touched on yet is uh, the toxicity profile of these agents. And, you know, I like to think that, you know, it really takes a village to manage these patients. And so these are toxicities that everyone on your team should be aware of um, and your patients should be aware of um, prior to starting these uh, therapies so they can help you to monitor for these side effects. Uh, but I like my nurses to know about these, the, the nurse practitioners I work with, so that they can help when the patient calls in with um, side effects, because sometimes just a little bit of coaching can help um, keep prevent uh, dose reduction of these agents. Over on the left-hand side, you can see common toxicities seen with BTK inhibitors. And I like to think of them as you know, toxicities that you'll see early in the treatment management versus, you know, throughout the course versus you know, are more common later in management. 
but arthralgia and diarrhea, um, nausea, sometimes dermatologic changes, fatigue, um, these are all things that you see most commonly during the first part of therapy, so the first month or two of therapy. Um, and they do get better over time, and so just encouraging patients to get through these. Um, things that don't change over time are pretty consistent, the bleeding and bruising. Um, a lot of patients will get petechial rashes um, uh, with these therapies and need to be aware of it should they go into like elect an elective surgery, um, their risk of bleeding. Um, the cardiac toxicities of atrial fibrillation and hypertension really um, increase over time. Uh, the longer the patient are on these drugs, the more risk they have of, uh, of having this. And of course, you've heard of the ventricular arrhythmias that were seen with uh, ibrutinib, but also recent reports are showing um, some data that might suggest that acalabrutinib also has this, um, this side effect. Uh, conversely, over on the right-hand side, um, you can see adverse events to watch with venetoclax therapy. Um, all of us have heard about the tumor lysis um, associated with venetoclax, and you know, Nicole is going to talk about some combination therapies, and I found in combination this is much, much lower risk to happen because if you can debulk uh, the patient's disease before starting therapy, it's a very uh, significantly lower risk. Um, GI effects and myelosuppression are common, and we'll talk about some of the management of this on the upcoming slides. So first, um, shifting back over to BTK inhibitors. Um, again, these cardiac toxicities are really important to monitor for. I often am asking my patients, have you had palpitations? Do you feel your heart racing? Because um, these patients do get paroxysmal AFib, and sometimes you have to put them on a cardiac monitor in order to um, determine this, because often, you know, when they're sitting there in your clinic, they are in sinus rhythm, but definitely have history concerning for atrial fibrillation. Um, I mentioned that these drugs um, have a risk of bleeding, and so then, of course, you, don't, you should not put these patients on warfarin as anticoagulation because early clinical trials showed some very severe and life-threatening bleeding when using these drugs in combination. However, I have used this safely in combination with um, the DOAX or other oral anti, um, anticoagulants, um, uh, which you just have to really carefully monitor and make sure the patients know that they're aware of their risk of bleeding. Hypertension is the next one on the list. I've really had to, you know, put my internal medicine hat back on and, and manage these patients because often it's, it's fairly refractory hypertension that you see over time. Um, and a lot of times these patients have to be on more than one um, a blood pressure medication. And so it's, it's really great to have a great relationship with the patient's primary care provider, or their cardiologist, so they can help you manage. And, you know, a lot of, um, you know, primary care docs, they may not realize that the, the BTK inhibitor is what's driving this hypertension. Um, and so working together is a really good idea. Um, and of course, monitoring for signs of bleedings and educating patients when they go on treatment. If they have an elective surgery, they need to contact you because there's a certain amount of time before and after a surgery, depending on um, the invasiveness of the, of the surgery that you want to hold, hold drug. Um, over on the right-hand side, uh, I've highlighted a couple of things that are a little bit more specific to the second-generation BTK inhibitors, um, although could happen with uh, other drugs. Um, headaches are very common um, in the first couple of months with acalabrutinib. 40 to 50% of patients experience this. Um, they're usually very effectively managed with just Tylenol um, and caffeine. And again, you know, some encouragement for the patient that these will go away over time. I try to have people avoid using ibuprofen except for in short doses, just secondary to increased um, uh, bleeding risk with the drugs. 
Uh, quoted in clinical trials, neutropenia is a little bit bigger issue with zanibrutinib. Um, I do monitor patients' blood counts when they're starting therapy, usually weekly for the first month and then monthly. And then after that, I, I monitor them on an every three-month basis. Uh, try to prevent um, dose reductions or dose holds and just use GCSF to help you know, boost up their, uh, their neutrophil counts. And then, as always, these patients, um, you know, any patient on treatment or not should be monitored for infection and other secondary malignancies. We have some very nice head-to-head data comparing the first-generation BTK inhibitor, ibrutinib, with second-generation BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib and zanubrutinib. I've highlighted a couple of key points from these studies here. The Elevate RR study was uh, done for patients with relapsed refractory CLL, um, and patients were randomized between acalabrutinib and ibrutinib. Um, highlighted here in red are those rates of atrial fibrillation um, uh, occurring in 16% of patients um, uh, receiving ibrutinib therapy, which is a pretty high number. Um, and still uh, a high number, 10% in patients treated with acalabrutinib, but a lower, uh, a lower rate, so a little bit um, less on the cardiac toxicity there. This study also showed a lower cumulative incidence uh, of hypertension, bleeding, diarrhea, and arthralgia. So um, all in all, the study showed similar efficacy, but um, decreased toxicity with using acalabrutinib. Kind of a similar study, um, the Alpine study, um, looked at patients with relapsed refractory CLL and randomized them to either uh, zanubrutinib or ibrutinib. You can see the rates of atrial fibrillation in general were a little bit lower on this study with 10% at ibrutinib and 2.5% uh, with zanubrutinib, which is quite low number, probably um, close to the background uh, of these patients um, who, who have CLL. And so overall, this body of data with the Elevate RR and the Alpine data um, have really kind of shifted pe people from using um, uh, ibrutinib right up front and, and, and using a second generation like acalabrutinib. Um, and this is actually reflected in the most recent update of the NCCN guidelines as well. Other really important person on your team is your pharmacist um, because there's a lot of different drug interactions with these drugs. Um, so having the pharmacist review their current medication list and look for things like strong or moderate um, CYP3A4 inducers um, or inhibitors um, and making the appropriate adjustments are very important. Um, also letting your patients know if another doctor wants to start a medication on them just to kind of give you a heads up and so you can make sure that there are no interactions with their drug because um, that could either decrease the efficacy or you know alternatively increase the toxicity of these drugs. Um, and then a big deal has been with acalabrutinib. Um, previously, uh, the, the, the original formulation um, needed uh, stomach acid in order to digest this medication and, and, and have it be effective. However, um, the FDA has just recently approved a, a brand new formulation. This is an immediate release um, film-coated tablet in suspension. Um, and that um, prevents that issue with using it, uh, the drug with proton pump inhibitors. Uh, and so this is something to be aware of and consider um, adding this to your, uh, your institution's formulary. Venetoclax monitoring, um, usually uh, the most aggressive monitoring happens during the first month that the patients are on that, and that's mostly related to their tumor lysis risk. And so all these patients should be evaluated in terms of, you know, how high is their white blood cell count, how big are their lymph nodes. Um, you may need to get a, a CT scan to see what their internal lymph node size are. 
Um, making sure that patients are very uh, hydrated and using antihyperuricemics such as allopurinol and really frequent monitoring. And now again, Nicole's going to talk about some of the combinations coming up and, and really those combinations and debulking their um, disease before starting venetoclax is actually very highly effective. Venetoclax does uh, cause cytopenias. Uh, neutropenia and thrombocytopenia are both seen. Um, in terms of neutropenia um, and thrombocytopenia, I try to avoid dose reductions if I can use GCSF um, uh, to prevent a dose reduction, um, I will. And then GI events uh, are common, but usually very easily manageable. Um, diarrhea uh, is seen, can, um, can use antidiarrheals for this, and nausea is seen. And I've found that if, you, um, if a patient's experiencing nausea, if you have them move their dose to the evening, um, and so that nausea mostly occurs while they're sleeping. It's usually a little bit easier to tolerate. Um, and then, of course, venetoclax is often used in combination with CD20 monoclonal antibodies, and, and these combinations are, are, are really uh, prevent you from being able to respond adequately to vaccines, uh, which, of course, is really important in this era of COVID. And I'm going to hand it back over to Nicole. Okay, so let's talk about combinations. Obviously, the exciting topic that is here at the meeting and, and other meetings and congresses that we've recently had. Obviously, there's a, a rationale for using oral-oral combinations between BTK and, and BCL2 uh, inhibitors, and there's obviously a differential effect uh, with these different agents. Venetoclax more effectively clears out the marrow compartment. This is why you can obtain complete remissions and MRD negativity in the bone marrow. Um, and so this is a, a, a unique aspect of why the combinations with venetoclax can be time-limited. There's obviously a little bit of a non-overlapping toxicity profile, although, as Deb had mentioned, you can have a little bit of myelosuppression and neutropenia with some of the BTKs, and certainly you can have myelosuppression with venetoclax. Um, so it's something to keep monitoring, um, but, but obviously uh, something that's manageable. Um, there's a potential for reduced resistance during the combination therapy. Obviously, that remains to be seen long-term as we get longer follow-up data from some of the combination studies. And obviously, we know this can be in a highly effective time-limited therapy given the response rates that we're seeing. So let's just go over some of the studies. There are many. But just to give you an example, obviously, let's talk a little bit about the Captivate study. So this is fixed-duration abrutinib and venetoclax. They have a three-month abrutinib lead-in. And then the combination uh, with venetoclax occurs, they take 12 months of, of uh, brutinib and venetoclax in combination. There are actually two cohorts of the study. So this is the fixed duration cohort where everybody gets the three-month lead-in with abrutinib and then the combination for 12 months, and then everybody stops therapy. So this is a little bit of data from the fixed duration cohort. So here you can see we now have about uh, two years of follow-up data. So again, everybody takes therapy for 15 months, and then they've been followed for another 12 months approximately is what we have on the data. And you can see the, the responses are very similar, whether patients do or do not have a deletion set. 17P. Um, and then on the right, you can see that here's the time period of when patients are off therapy, the treatment period in gray, and then in, on the right in white. And so you can see all patients, whether with or without deletion 17P, the PFS so far at 24 months has been about 95, 96%. So, so, so far, very good. Everybody's off therapy. Um, and doing well so far at the two-year follow-up. Obviously, we're going to be waiting for longer follow-up to see how this matures, uh, but very nice data with this fixed-duration cohort. 
Now, what about there's, there's also an MRD cohort. This is the second cohort that I was alluding to. And patients are actually randomized. So if they have undetectable MRD, that subgroup is randomized to either go on placebo or randomized to continue with abrutinib. Then there's actually another cohort for those who do have MRD detectable disease. Uh, they are randomized to either continue abrutinib or, or randomized to continue abrutinib and venetoclax. This is just the folks who have uh, the undetectable MRD at the end of the 15-month therapy. This is a little data from that cohort. You can see here that um, patients are doing uh, very well. Those are their the blue line is those that would continue to brutinib. The orange line is those that continue on placebo. The one-year um, DFS rate is about 95% on placebo versus 100% on a brutinib. No significant difference yet. We're obviously going to follow uh, over time to see if the curves, uh, you know, how they go about. Will there be a greater split over time? But you can see that um, uh, in 95% in patients with confirmed undetectable MRD, everybody is doing well. So stay tuned for longer follow-up of these types of studies that I think will be very important. That'll help guide us about what to do with our, not only the patients, but also will certain subgroups fall out differently depending upon their disease characteristics. And then uh, and more of an international study, this is the GLOW study that looked at abrutinib and venetoclax versus uh, more traditional combination chemoimmunotherapy with obinutuzumab, chlorambucil in an older or unfit patient population. Um, and you can see here that the PFS uh, was better with abrutinib and venetoclax as well as the complete response rate, not surprising, versus obinutuzumab and chlorambucil. But the reason I bring this up is that several, most recently this has actually led to the EMA approval of a Brutinib and venetoclax for adults with previously untreated CLL. So this is now approved overseas. Now, when we talk about safety, uh, obviously this is important because we talked about, Deb talked about initially the, the toxicities of both the BTK inhibitors, but also venetoclax. And even though these are time-limited approaches, we know this from chemoimmunotherapy. When you pile drugs on together, there always is some additive toxicity. And so it's important to keep that in mind. So from the, the GLOW study and from the Captivate study here, you, it, for the GLOW, there were similar rates of grade 3 or more adverse events, 76% for the ibrutinib venetoclax versus 70% versus obinutuzumab clarimbucil. And then in the SAEs, greater than 5% of patients on each arm, infections a little bit more with ibrutinib and venetoclax, um, 12 versus 8.6, and AFib certainly more with the BTK inhibitor, not surprisingly. Um, and there was a small 2% of patients in the, in the ibrutinib venetoclax arm that that were discontinued due to atrial fibrillation. And remember, this is time-limited therapy, so keep that in mind. In the Captivate study, uh, most of the grade 3 AEs were neutropenia, so 33%, so again, more myelosuppression, so keep that in mind, and hypertension uh, with the BTK. Uh, dose reductions of abrutinib were in 6% of patients in the venetoclax arm, uh, with venetoclax in 11%, and in the combination um, in 4% with both abrutinib and venetoclax, so just keep that in mind. So the combinations we know are highly effective with high response rates, and the PFS looks really nice, but you have to think about that depending upon the patient that you're enrolling on the oral-oral combinations in terms of safety and for some of your older patients. Um, the early experience, we talked a little bit, um, just Deb had alluded to, about debulking. And so one of the issues that comes up with CLL-14, of course, with the venetoclaxobinutuzumab, is if you have a high-risk patient, of course, um, you can debulk with obinutuzumab starting as a lead-in for the venetoclax if you're going to do it that way. But we all know that you may have a nice infusion reaction with the obinutuzumab. So, so there is some pros and cons a little bit of that. But in your high-risk patients, you, if you need to, you're going to admit them and hospitalize them. When you're doing the oral 
oral combinations it's a lot easier to lead into the venetoclaxis way. So with abrutinib, again, it was a three-month lead-in with the Captivate study uh, prior to starting the combination with venetoclax, and there's no doubt it reduces the tumor lysis risk in your patients. So you can see here, after three cycles of uh, abrutinib lead-in, 90% of patients that were previously high risk, only 2% remained high risk before their initiation of the venetoclax ramp-up. So it makes it certainly easier then to transition those individuals when they're starting venetoclax to certainly do that as an outpatient when they're now not high risk anymore. So it definitely makes it a little bit easier to, to transition them onto venetoclax-based therapy. As I said, those two examples were really only two of many trials that are looking at oral-oral combinations. There are obviously studies, doublets and triplets, looking at the, the second-generation covalent BTK inhibitors, both with a calibrutinib and xanabrutinib. You have um, uh, AVO, which is a calibrutinib, Ven, and, and obinutuzumab. You have a MAGIC study, which is, uh, we'll be looking at a calibrutinib and venetoclax uh, as well. And then the Sequoia RMD, which already... Uh, is enrolling a large amount of patients with xanabrutinib and venetoclax in high-risk CLL patients. And I'm going to pass it over to Deb to talk a little bit about the optimizing sequencing of these agents. Yeah, and thanks for those, that introduction to the combination studies, because what a lot of people are asking now is, okay, so we've got two great classes of drugs. If we use these up front, then what do we do once the patient relapses um, after this therapy? And I think decision-making is a little bit more complicated in the second-line setting, but key items are what therapy have the patient had before and what was the reason for discontinuing therapy. Uh, because you'll see a lot of patients uh, discontinue, uh, especially ibrutinib, secondary to toxicity or intolerance. Um, there have been real-world reports that say that 40% of people discontinue um, therapy over time, and this is largely driven by toxicity. And again, the incidence of these adverse events is greatest within the first six months. Um, and so again, counseling these patients, if you can get them through that six-month time period, you know, potentially they will not come off of therapy secondary to intolerance. Uh, and so in these patients who have had, you know, intolerance to one BTK inhibitor, um, such as ibrutinib, they still can receive therapy with acalabrutinib, and I'll go over some of that data and sequencing and the effect of um, toxicity in the second um, BTK inhibitor that they've seen. Of course, disease progression is a little bit different story. Um, when, you, uh, when you have a patient that's progressing on covalent BTK inhibitor, I mean, Nicole already mentioned um, the BTK and PLC gamma 2 mutations, and those are going to confer resistance to all of uh, the currently available BTK inhibitors and these um, drugs such as ibrutinib, acalbrutinib, zanibrutinib. And so obviously if somebody has progressed on it, you would not want to use another BTK inhibitor. You'd want to go on to a different line of therapy. And I have some data um, to show about uh, venetoclax in this setting specifically. Uh, Nicole kind of introduced the concept of double refractory CLL, so patients who have had both BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibitors. And um, she highlighted the data that um, very short survival and next line of therapy after those um, at only 5.5 uh, months. Of, of course, there are um, uh, BCL2 mutations as well to consider. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people ask about, you know, would you check for these mutations before starting? Uh, because I know that that's not available at every center. Um, I personally do check for mutations before I'm considering rechallenging somebody. 
Um, this is going to become uh, really important also because, um, as you guys know, venetoclax therapies are fixed duration. And so, you know, when you stop after a year of therapy, um, you know, let's say you want to maybe consider retreating somebody with venetoclax therapy. I think it's a good idea to know um, whether or not they, they have developed resistance mutations during their time on therapy so you can predict their response um, and would not put patients who are resistant um, on, back on the same therapy. So um, this is data from a phase two study looking at patients who were um, who discontinued ibrutinib secondary to intolerance. Some of the important reasons for discontinuation are listed here. And then what it shows is um, how many patients actually had that side effect recur again once they started um, acalabrutinib therapy. And there were some people that did have a, a recurrence of the same toxicity, but almost in every single case, um, these were at a lower grade. And so it was more tolerable um, for the patient. And so this is a safe um, option if a patient um, has become intolerant to ibrutinib. Um, acalabrutinib should be an option based on this study. There was a similar phase two study um, done with uh, patients who had received either ibrutinib or acalabrutinib. Um, and came off for a toxicity, which um, the, uh, some important and key ones are listed um, here on this slide. Um, these patients were treated with zanubrutinib, and you can see that very few, um, only those who are listed in blue, had a recurrence of the same toxicity. Um, and you can see so arthralgia, atrial fibrillation, fatigue, myalgia, and rash had a few. Uh, but the vast majority, 88% of uh, the toxicities that caused them to come off one of those drugs did not recur when the patient was on zanubrutinib. So also, um, you know, zanubrutinib is not yet approved um, for CLL. It is approved uh, in mantle cell lymphoma um, and, and, and can be um, sometimes uh, procured off-label uh, off um, if you have a patient that is you know, has shown intolerance to both acalabrutinib and ibrutinib therapy. Here's the data from a phase two study um, looking at venetoclax in those patients who came off of ibrutinib uh, secondary to being refractory or intolerant. This is a really high-risk group of patients with a median of four prior therapies. Um, half of them had deletion 17P, so really high-risk group, but still showed an overall response rate of 70% to single-agent venetoclax therapy. Um, the 12-month estimate of progression-free survival was 75%. And so it does show that sequencing, you know, venetoclax after a BTK inhibitor can have some really great efficacy. So what's really exciting is uh, some new non-covalent BTK inhibitors. And what's exciting about this is we all know that BTK inhibitors are a really active class of drugs. So what happens when you become resistant to it? Well, unfortunately, this um, you know, class of drugs has answered some of that question. Um, over on the left-hand side, you see kind of the binding schema for um, uh, the covalent BTK inhibitors, including ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zanubrutinib. Um, they do require this binding um, of the drug to the C481 moiety um, there on BTK. Um, and when that mutates, which is the most common site of mutation, the drug can no longer effectively bind. However, with uh, drugs like pertubrutinib, um, I'll talk a little bit about nemtubrutinib, these next generation ones, they don't require binding to that site to work. And so patients who have um, you know, this mutation still have a chance of having re a, a really good chance of having a response um, to these um, next generation BTK inhibitors. And I'll share a little bit of this data. Uh, the Bruin study is a study where pertubrutinib, which is formerly called LOXO305, um, shows activity in, in relapsed refractory CLL. 
Um, it's hard to see the individual lines, but you can note that, that some of the lines are darker color and some are a lighter blue. Um, those darker blue lines are people who were on BTK inhibitors and came off for progression. And so you can see that they still had a really significant lymph node response. In fact, the overall response rate on the study was uh, 68%. And what this graphic shows is whether the patient had a C481-BTK mutation or not, um, they actually had equivalent progression-free survival, which is really great news uh, for these patients who have relapsed after therapy. The other subset analysis that was done on this study is there are, are, are several different combinations patients could have received before this, but really importantly, patients who are these double refractory patients who've had both a, a covalent BTK inhibitor and a BCL2 inhibitor had a, a really great overall response rate uh, um, to pertubrutinib therapy. Of course, this drug is not quite uh, available yet, uh, has not been approved by the FDA um, for any indication, but there are rumblings that potentially mantle cell approval is coming soon. Um, and so a really exciting drug to watch. Uh, similarly, another um, non-covalent BTK inhibitor is called nemtabrutinib. This was uh, formerly known as ARQ531. Um, and uh, this drug also in a phase 1-2 study showed really promising results uh, with an overall response rate in refractory CLL patients of 53%. There were a couple of different cohorts. Cohort 8, um, cohort A um, had a BTK mutation in that C481S region, and cohort B did not. And so you can see here I've shown the duration of uh, response, and the median duration of response has not yet been reached in patients, and so once the patients do achieve a response, it is uh, shown to be durable. Um, in terms of progression-free survival, really importantly, a lot, all of these curves are overlapping, even though um, you know, half of these patients have C481S mutations and half do not. And so um, it really shows that in these uh, patients that have refractory disease, um, a really great evidence of response. And what, what I haven't shown on this, but is also exciting about both this drug, nemtabrutinib and pertubrutinib, is the toxicity profile. A lot of the side effects that we've been talking about with BTK inhibitors um, have really not been seen, and um, patients actually do very well. And now we're really going to transition into a case forum. So just to kind of go over some of the data that we went through and a little bit talk about you know, how we can utilize these agents and sequencing and sort of uh, talk about different pa patient case scenarios where that may be applicable to. So here you have an older gentleman, uh, 75. He has some uh, comorbid conditions uh, and has symptomatic CLL. His white count is 102. Hemoglobin is 9.5. His platelets are 120. He has both diabetes and hypertension. He has an unmutated IGHV. He has a deletion 13Q. Um, and and cer so certainly when we talk about, and, and again, Deb and I are both not going to talk about chemoimmunotherapy. Um, so we're really going to focus on uh, what we are using more predominantly in our practice, and I'm comfortable saying that, that, mm -hmm. that both Deb and I feel that way. Um, so with regards to this patient, you know, would you consider B continuous BTKI-based therapy or fixed duration, you know, ven obinutuzumab? Deb, yeah. what do you think? And I mean, I think this is a really common um, situation that we see, you know, an uh, older patient, um, you know, what's the best option for them? I mean, you want to consider um, the toxicity profile of the drugs, and of course, this patient already has hypertension. You know, might BTK inhibitors um, make that hypertension worse? It's possible. 
Um, however, um, you know, you also consider the mode of delivery of these drugs. And of course, um, the venetoclaxobinutuzumab uh, regimen does require um, coming in for um, IV uh, therapy. And some patients, um, you know, just uh, would like to avoid that. I mean, in general, but especially during the COVID era, um, people like to avoid that. And so you can really, you know, take into consideration both um, their... Um, both their personal preferences in terms of therapy and what side effect profile. Um, you know, usually in older individuals, I, I most likely would uh, go towards uh, BTK inhibitor therapy. However, you know, there's nothing wrong with using venetoclax or obinutuzumab in this population as well. Yeah, agreed. I, I, I feel the same. You know, these, these, you know, I think a lot of choice, back in the day, for those of you who remember chemo immunotherapy, our, our options were much more limited. Um, you know, now that we have great options for these patients and the efficacy is either of chronic continuous BTK versus the time-limited therapies are so good that, you, you know, patient preference and, and what they logistically can be able to do and then looking about comorbidities and social support and COVID and so on and so forth, I think patients have really good options and can then also tailor their needs based on the therapy and vice versa. So, um, you know, usually unless there's something that's saying you can't do X because they have terrible kidneys or they mm-hmm. have such difficult to control hypertension and cardiac issues that it makes you nervous even with the second generation, that patients have many options that you can strategize along with them. So I think both options for this patient are completely reasonable. Now, what about if they're high risk? So again, you have the older, it's the same patient, older individual has diabetes and hypertension, but they have a TP53 or even a complex karyotype. Yeah, and in this patient population, especially the TP53 mutated patients, I generally steer towards BTK inhibitors. And that's just, you know, part of the reason why is, you know, the, the data that you've shown. I think we have the longest follow-up data in the, these patient populations. And um, you know, just uh, several studies that have shown prospectively that um, these patients can have very, very long progression-free survivals while on BTK inhibitors. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the longest follow-up data we have now for venetoclax and obinutuzumab-based uh, therapy is, is really the, that CLL-14 study. Um, and there weren't a lot of patients with TP53 mutations on that. And you definitely can see a separation of the curve. Um, so the patients that um, have, you know, TP53 mutation don't have as long of progression-free survival uh, with that regimen. And so, you know, some people say, you know, I don't know, maybe that's comparing apples to oranges because, you know, the venetoclax and obinutuzumab therapy is a limited therapy. And, you know, the majority of the relapses do come after patients stop um, therapy after that year. And so, um, you know, a question is, you know, are these patients that just need to be on continuous therapy? And since our BTK inhibitors are our continuous therapy, that's, you know, the one that looks the best when we look at it in, in, in clinical trials. And so, I mean, I, I usually, um, you know, uh, push people towards BTK inhibitors when they have a TP53 mutation. Yeah, I agree. I, I tend to do that now, although I, I know this is still very much up for debate. Um, and given how well patients are doing, I think the, the one answer that I want to tell everybody is for sure these patients should be getting a targeted agent. So we may debate mm-hmm. about which that targeted agent is, mm-hmm. but they shouldn't be getting pure chemoimmunotherapy if they mm-hmm. have a 17P or a P53. And I think that, that, that certainly is a, should be changed uh, for, for everyone. 
Uh, but I do think, given that we just have the longest follow-up. Now, of course, what I'm really interested in seeing is what our high-risk population does on the oral-oral combination. So, you know, will they have a, a better PFS that then we'll all be comfortable saying, ooh, even in the high risk, we can do time limited yeah. because they're getting both BTK and venetoclax. And so I think that that's one of the subgroups with a lot of these combination studies that I'm going to be really, really interested in following long term what they do compared to, let's say, ven obinutuzumab. So we'll have studies that are, that are currently obviously looking at that and studies going forward. And so I think that's a population that we're going to want to watch because maybe we can even offer then time limited limited to those individuals with high-risk disease, so stay tuned for that. Uh, and then let's switch to a younger person. Yeah, so I, I guess really very similar case, but just a younger patient, so a 59-year-old man with symptomatic CLL. Um, any preference in this patient population? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's not across the board, but my younger patients tend to really like time-limited. Um, they're willing to put in the extra effort. Um, you know, usually the venobinutuzumab may be busy up front, and if they're high risk and require hospitalization, there's no doubt that, that clearly there's a lot more monitoring that takes place initially. Once you get people through that first two months of therapy, though, mm-hmm. it actually is a very easy combination to give. Um, so, so usually my younger folks will like something that's time limited. I think it also depends on what the patient's goals of therapy are. Um, and so if somebody wants to achieve MRD negativity uh, and, and then have a period of time off of treatment, that becomes really important to them, uh, then for sure they're going to choose a time-limited approach that, again, tends to be, although there are some of my older folks who want that too, um, so I, I think, hence why I think oral is very appealing even to older folks as well. Uh, but certainly uh, I think this is one of those areas where I would choose a, a time-limited approach for, for, the younger, for the younger patient with the goal of sort of getting them off drug and getting a deep remission. Yeah, I agree. I, I generally steer the patients in this way. And, you know, one thing we, we haven't talked about is financial toxicity. And so, you know, of course, um, if a patient's insurance doesn't cover a continuous therapy and you're asking somebody to go on a treatment forever, and, you know, maybe it's a $2,000 a month copay, I, that's just not sustainable. Um, you know, some, you know, the although the the... The assistance programs are actually quite generous. There are some people that kind of fall through the cracks in that and just can't afford the, that continuous therapy. Um, you know, and so, th- so that's something also to consider um, with these patients. Um, and, you know, on the, on the flip side, you know, I do generally feel like my younger patients say, you know, I, I'd like a time-limited therapy. I, I want to do something and be done with it. But I was actually really surprised the other day because, I, you know, I have a patient and she has some other, um, you know, chronic medical conditions. And she said, you know what, like, I, I, I'm already on drug that I take every day. So what difference does it make adding another one? Uh, you know, and so some people, you know, just have different preferences. Um, you know, and you know, in the region that I serve, which is um, you know the Mountain West, and lots of people have to travel. Um, you know, just starting a BTK inhibitor is actually quite easy for these patients because we just ship it to them and they start the treatment. We can get local labs. Whereas, you know, if if, if they if they live really far from the treatment center and they have to come in for these venetic, you know, the obinutuzumab infusions and venetoclax tumor lysis monitoring, you know. Some of the things are just logistic, purely logistic. And I guess what we're getting at is, you know, these patients have really good treatment options. And so we can really tailor um, that treatment to to those patients. Um, 
And so um, just kind of as uh, Nicole was alluding to, you know, we really have different goals of therapy. So the BTK inhibitors, the, the goal of therapy is disease control. Um, these drugs do lead to prolonged progression-free survival. Um, you know, MRD status is not quite so important um, in these patients. Whereas, you know, the fixed duration approach with venetoclax and obinutuzumab, I, I think of it as, you know, hitting it hard and trying to get it in as the deepest remission that we possibly can so that we can give people some time off of therapy. And that's, you know, also the goal, um, you know, one of the, the, the appeals of the, um, of the BTK and BCL2 combination is, could we get that benefit of the BTK inhibitors but then have that drug available in a fixed duration um, type of therapy so that you can maybe get the benefits of both. So um, how about this patient? And just assume that this is a patient that comes to you and, you know, you're examining their neck. They've got, you know, seven centimeter lymph node conglomerate, um, you know, just huge lymph nodes everywhere. And you're thinking, um, you know, how high a risk are they for tumor lysis if you start them on venetoclax and obinutuzumab <laughs> therapy? Well, obviously they are high risk, um, and I'd still I'm not going to say that they couldn't do either because they could mm -hmm. um, with fixed duration as well. You know, clearly, um, and we're spoiled, so we we realize that depending upon where you are, you know, I have the luxury of having a, a leukemia service, so we bring them in. Uh, so if if this 59 year old said I wanted time limited, they'd be coming in because they have bulky lymphadenopathy, and and I'd be monitoring them for tumor lysis in the hospital setting. So it's something certainly that is. Uh, easy to do, but this is where the oral-oral combinations would have an appeal, right? So that, that if somebody has bulky disease, you know, certainly, you know, front-loading them with a, a BTK inhibitor and then debulking them and then doing venetoclax um, would certainly be uh, an appeal for, for this type of individual. Um, so certainly that's an option as well. Yeah. No, I 100% I agree with that. I think this you know, this young high-risk population is, is kind of appealing group for me with those combination um, therapies up front. And, you know, part of that, you know, reason just to limit their risk of tumor lysis and, and still make it a time-limited therapy. Ah, okay. So let's go back to um, Robert, the older gentleman. So he's unmutated. He has diabetes and, and hypertension. He received a calibrutinib and then had regression, so that was his first therapy, and then got venetoclax rituximab in second line, and he progressed two years after the end of line of therapy. So remember, that was it, that venetoclax rituximab, uh, per the Murano study, is a two-year therapy, so he was on therapy for two years and then had two years of observation. I'm going to say he didn't progress right after. Let's give him four <laughs> years. So he progressed two years after. Yeah, that's right, four right. years. So he had four years, which is pretty good. Um, so what's next? Would you consider another covalent BTK inhibitor? Would you retreat with venetoclax um, or a non-covalent BTK inhibitor? This is some of the things we touched upon earlier. Yeah, and I think that this case is going to become more and more common for you for all to see in your clinic. Um, because, you know, now that uh, these drugs have been around for long enough, you are starting to see some of these double refractory patients. And, you know, as, in terms of what's available, um, you know, on the market right now, really, um, you know, idelalisib is a drug that might fit into this. We haven't talked much about PI3 kinase inhibitors. I know um, they're not the easiest um, drugs to use, um, and a lot of people have really moved away from using them. Um, you know, I had a uh, I had somebody ask me, well, well, what about what about using bendamustine and rituximab in this patient? And I mean, 
you know, I, I, I typically would not do that, and I'm just spoiled, and I have lots of clinical trials at my disposal, um, and I think that these, it's really important to enroll these patients on clinical trials, and so I, I typically wouldn't, but, you know, if you're stuck and you don't have anything and that's, you know, a drug that they haven't seen before, you know, I would probably go to retreatment with venetoclax before I would go to a chemoimmunotherapy agent, I, you know, I'd probably have about 10 things on my list before I would go back to chemoimmunotherapy, but that's, you know, potentially a population uh, where that would be useful. And then, of course, the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, I think, are really, really attractive um, due to toxicity profile and efficacy in this population. Of course, those are only available in clinical trial right now. And, you know, I, the question about retreatment with venetoclax, I don't, I don't know if we know the answer yet. I mean, there's a prospective clinical trial that's being uh, planned right now to maybe help us out with this. It's, it's like, how, how do you consider, you know, if somebody relapses six months after, if they relapse two months, you know, two years after, like, when's the appropriate time to tell us that um, these patients might respond to venetoclax therapy again? Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, of course, we, we don't have time to cover all the really exciting um, treatments that are coming forward. But, you know, this, this may um, also be a population where CAR T cells um, are really exciting for these patients. Maybe not for the 75 or 78-year-old, but uh, maybe. In Utah, 75-year-olds okay? are pretty young. They're well, usually skiing every day. Well, then I should move <laughs> to Utah because that's not New York City. Um, but uh, but just to just to kind of go over this a little bit, you know, clearly we know that if if um, you know if they fail the covalent BTK inhibitor, you're probably not going to go back to that. The retreatment with venetoclax, I think, is a viable option depending upon the time period. Obviously, there are studies, as Deb mentioned, that are going to hopefully address that because I think many of us would be uncomfortable retreating somebody with venetoclax if they shortly just relapsed right after venetoclax-based therapy. But there are actual, there's a, you know, uh, there's a study that's going to look at the time period of when people finish their treatment with venetoclax and randomize them accordingly and take a look. So you can see, and I think it is important that you get venetoclax-resistant testing because certainly that would be a patient population that you probably wouldn't want to retreat with venetoclax because that would tell you something. The non-covalent BTK inhibitors, of course, when they become available will certainly be an option. I think what's going to be really interesting is to figure out, and, and the playing field gets a little bit murky, because the longer we go, then we have to figure out what sequences and get long-term data on that. I guess it's a good problem to have for our CLL patients, because what we want to know is then, what do we do? What's the appropriate way to sequence some of these therapies? And so should we go to from covalent to non-covalent to VEN, right. for covalent VEN to non-covalent? These are all issues that need to be worked out. Uh, but certainly, um, uh, there, now we'll have uh, another agents, uh, another obviously class of agents that we can use for our patients that are progressing and developing resistant mutations to either covalent BTK inhibitors or venetoclax. So I think that's exciting for our patients. And just to go over this, I think that supporting strategy against BTK inhibitor resistance in CLL. So, so obviously, um, venetoclax, if you have a BTK inhibitor resistance, certainly we have data that you could use venetoclax, and we have data that you can go to a non-covalent BTK inhibitor, so I think that's good. The PI3 kinase inhibitors, as Deb mentioned, um, certainly, you know, there was data from an earlier study that was reported that, that, that going to then, if you have a BTK inhibitor resistance, which is different than intolerance, that certainly if you then went to a PI3 kinase 
inhibitor that the, the response duration was not as durable. So, so it's not to say you couldn't use it, it's just that it may be a shorter response duration. So just keep that in mind. And there isn't, although Deb mentioned about chemoimmunotherapy, we just don't have a lot of data, right? So we don't really have a ton of data going, well, if you've got a BTK and you got VEN, can you go to chemoimmunotherapy? I mean, obviously our goal was to move away from more toxic therapies, but Deb's right. Depending upon where you are in your circumstances, who knows? You know, you, you, you're going to use what you can use, and if that's all you got, if for an older patient, bendamustine might be suitable. Just most of us would, would tend to try to look for other agents. Um, and we just don't have the data post-targeted therapies uh, with chemoimmunotherapy. I think what we all think is not appropriate is that if you fail one covalent going to another covalent BDK inhibitor, it does not make any sense. Okay, and so just to summarize um, from the, the whole presentation, obviously the BTK inhibitors are very effective, um, and we, they can have long PFS as evidenced by the earlier studies, both of the brutinib, now even maturing data with a calibrutinib and sunzanabrutinib. You can have a long PFS uh, independent of your mutational status, and as long as you stay on therapy, right? So chronic continuous BTK, issues about intolerance can come up, and so that's, but if you stay on therapy, patients can do very, very well. Venetoclax-based treatment combinations that can clear most patients with their MRD uh, after one year of therapy, and we know this from the upfront study. So patients can get deep remissions, and hopefully that will translate into a long response duration off therapy. Obviously, when we talk about sequencing of BTK inhibitors and BCL2, not yet clear which is the best way to start first, but we know that either option is effective when used sequentially. Um, obviously, we have more data with the use of venetoclax after covalent BTK than vice versa, but we'll have that maturing data with those folks who are getting venobinutuzumab in frontline more commonly. You'll have more maturing data with BTK, covalent BTK inhibitors in that setting as well. And then as data continue to emerge on these combinations, these oral-oral, whether it be doublets or even in some studies triplets with the advent, the addition of the monoclonal antibodies, well, obviously there's continued opportunities for patients to have a fixed duration rather than continuous indefinite therapy. Hopefully that will reduce not only cost but some of the long-term toxicities. Um, although we do have to monitor the toxicities in the combinations if you're giving it for a year or 15 months, whatever some of the studies are doing, because of the debulking, clearly there's going to be enhanced toxicity and those patients might need to be monitored more closely, similar to what you're doing with venobinutuzumab. Um, and hopefully, uh, again, important management of the toxicities of these agents. They're great agents for our CLL patients. Um, and if we can get them through the toxicities, the patients are currently doing well. And this is what's improved the overall survival of patients with CLL. I think that being said, we're going to see if there's any questions. Yeah, one of the questions that we received from online, uh, what's your intake about using VENG with unmutated IGHV, um, using uh, obinutuzumab and venetoclax, or BTK with high level of neutropenia, which might require hospitalization? Um, you know, and a question, should we avoid using obinutuzumab due to this uh, limitation? Uh, I, I think it's a good question. Um, however, you know, obinutuzumab is a really highly active drug, and uh, you can see there, there was a study we didn't mention, the CLL13 study, which was a frontline study, um, and it looked at several different um, combinations, but one of the combinations was venetoclax with rituximab, one of them was venetoclax with obinutuzumab, and certainly we did see a much higher rate of MRD um, undetectable status um, with, in patients treated with obinutuzumab. And so, you know, it is, a, it is a little bit more toxic in terms of neutropenia and infusion-related react, reactions, but it seems like 
you know, in, in most patients, it's probably worth the benefit um, uh, of, of doing it because it's such a highly effective drug. And of course, when you're using that uh, regimen, the, the goal of it is a really deep remission. And it definitely looks like obinutuzumab can help you get a deeper remission with venetoclax therapy. I think there's, a, there's actually a lot of questions asking about the neutropenia, and, and even with the oral-oral combinations, one just came in. And so I think, it, you know, um, uh, it sounds like what Deb and I are, do are similar in our practices. We tend to, I tend not to try to take people off therapy or dose reduce them unless there's a reason. So if they have neutropenia, I also do not mind liberal use of growth factor. I know that's not everybody's practice. Um, I think patients who have persistent neutropenia on therapy, whether it's venetoclax-based therapy or the oral-oral combinations, then I'm going to want to know why. Uh, and those are the patients that I'll typically then do a bone marrow just to figure out, is there something that I'm missing? Um, some of these patients, particularly if, you, you know, more commonly, we're just gaining our experience with the oral-oral combinations, but patients who are on Ven antibody, when they're later on, let's say, um, on just, you know, venetoclax and they may get neutropenic, oftentimes when I do their, if they're persistently neutropenic despite, despite growth factor use, oftentimes it's because they're actually MRD negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I can stop therapy. But mm-hmm. the point is, is I, we try, I try to, unless they're having infectious complications or there's an issue that I'm worried about that I have to hold and dose reduce, I do. But if they're otherwise doing well, I'll tend to give growth factor. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, I had a, a you know, fairly young patient that I put on venetoclax and obinutuzumab therapy. And I, I had, you know, that similar situation where I, I just, you know, no matter what I did, I couldn't get them, get their neutropenia to recover. And, you know, doing, the, doing their bone marrow, they were completely clear of CLL. And so I actually ended their therapy early. You know, and it's a big discussion with the patient. But um, in the end, she has now been off treatment for about three years. Um, and so it was just such a deep remission that, um, you know, and even I think we were only about, you know, month four or five of the venetoclaxobinituzumab therapy. So um, it can happen that, you know, patients just have a really great response. So there's no doubt that there's going to be higher neutropenia with both oral, oral, or obinutuzumab combinations. But if you support your patients, give them growth factor. Clearly, if they're having no response to growth factor or persistent neutropenia or neutropenia and complications with infections, you're going to have to hold and dose reduce accordingly. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know about your experience, but even when patients have neutropenia, it's actually quite rare for them to have neutropenic fever. Um, And so, um, you know, just kind of managing, you know, expectations for, you know, if it's not severe neutropenia, you know, just trying to really um, get the patient through the treatment. Agreed, agreed. And then just a final, let's see, um, we'll talk about, uh, I guess, maybe testing, prognostic testing. Oh, yeah. I I would love to answer this question. Just um, in it. Um, so basically, uh, the question is, uh, do you need to know IGHV status um, because it's not playing a major role in managing patients? Um, I think that's a, you know, it's a very astute question. Um, I, I still think that it's really important because I think it helps with um, telling the patient about their prognosis and about their, um, you know, chances of responding to therapy. Um, you know, it, it is true that, you know, it's not quite such a decision cut point anymore because most of us are not using standard chemoimmunotherapy. However, you know, in patients who are, have unmutated IGHV, I, I, you know, unless I was, you know, had no other option, I wouldn't do um, chemoimmunotherapy, and so I think it's important there. Um, and then, of course, I, I, I'm a big advocate for checking these um, labs at the beginning, right when you um, diagnose a patient, because those patients with 
mutated IGHV, you know, you can tell them that they may be one of those patients that can live out the rest of their life without ever needing a treatment for CLL. Um, whereas the unmutated patients, they know that they're going to need treatment at some point, um, and you know they can prepare for that. And of course, right now we have a really large um, national study going on through SWAG, which is called the S1925. Um, involved CLL study, which looks at those patients who have high-risk disease and randomizes them to early versus delayed therapy with venetoclax and obinutuzumab. And how you determine if they're high-risk, it depends on their CLL IPI score, and you do have to have the IGHV status to, in order to calculate that. So I, I still do think it, it holds a lot of important prognostic information for the patients. I agree. I tend to test uh, everybody as well. Um, so just to summarize, because I think we're over time, uh, I want to thank you all for attending, um, and obviously, please feel free to, there are slides and things to, to view and polling questions, um, so you can submit your post-test evaluation for credit. You have slides and practice aids available as well. Um, and thank you for joining us. Have a good rest of the meeting. Thanks very much. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XPA860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Pharmacyclics LLC, and AbV Company, and Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC, Lilly, and Merck and Company Incorporated.